The cause of this death was blunt force trauma to the head. The missing mother who was found dead died from blunt force trauma. It says the child died from blunt force trauma to the head. The Emmy's office also confirms she died of blunt force trauma. The medical examiner says the cause of death was blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Hello and welcome to Blunt Force Trauma, the true crime podcast where we smoke weed and talk murder. I'm Jamie. I'm Mark. And we're back, finally, yeah. after a brief hiatus. Um, we just had a lot, yeah, we just had a lot going on, you know? Yeah. Business trips, sickness, general exhaustion, um, all of the above. But we're back and we have a crazy one for you this week. Um, but first, of course, I'm smoking a Concrete Jungle brand sativa called King Mamba. And I think I've talked about it on the show before, but this is the one that tastes like lemons and gasoline. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we were smoking it in our last episode. <laughs> Still good, though. Doing when it needs to. Um, how you doing, Marv? It's been a few weeks. How are they hanging? It's okay, I guess. Life is life. Life is life. Just trying to live one day at a time. Well, you're doing great. Um, yeah, how's it hanging for you, Jake? Um, the same, low. <laughs> hanging low. Um, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I have a case update for you. Um, the subject of our very first episode, Richard Cottingham, a.k.a. the Torso Killer. If you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen at some point. Um, he was a serial killer active in New York and New Jersey in the 60s and 70s. And a Bergen County detective was able to link him to like a slew of murders after he had already been locked up for many years. Um, but he was actually just indicted on yet another murder charge like two weeks ago. So just as we said, there are probably many more that will come to surface. Um, but this time he was indicted for the murder of a 23-year-old woman from New Hyde Park, New York that took place in 1968. And the woman's body was found in the back seat of her own car by her parents, which is terrible. Um, and I don't really have many details outside of that, but a DNA match on retested evidence linked him to the crime. So I just wanted to give that update. Um, there may be more to come. Who knows? Um, but the case I have for you this week is somehow even more fucked up than that one. Um, this week, we will be covering Israel Keys. And I do have to tell you right off the bat, uh, this is going to be a two-parter, okay? There's just so much information and details to his story that there was, like, no way I could edit everything down into a single episode. Like, usually I'll sift through and omit stuff to keep the episode at, like, a normal length. But in this case, there was, like, next to nothing that I wanted to leave out. <laughs> so this episode will be part one. Now, if you've never heard of him, he is one of America's most prolific serial killers, at least in the recent present, um, and not necessarily due to his body count because he's only been linked to 11 murders like officially and formally charged with three, uh, but it's his methodology that really sets him apart from some of the other more well-known serial killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, etc. Do, do you have something to say more <laughs> if you're looking at me like... I was just going to say, if you don't know who Israel Keys is, you can't really put himself a true crime. That's not true. Offending people five minutes in. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I don't know. Some people haven't heard of him. I mean, like, it wasn't as widely covered as, like, the Ted Bundys and the John Wayne Gacy's and stuff like that. It wasn't as, like, sensationalized until more recently when, like, true crime kind of exploded as, like, a entertainment genre. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Um, but he, he was just as callous, if not more so. Uh, but one of the main and most chilling differences between him and some of like these other more notorious killers is that Israel Keyes had zero victim profile. Uh, his murders were like based solely on convenience, and it didn't matter if you were a man, a woman, blonde, brunette. It was just a matter of being like at the wrong place at the wrong time. So like very scary and unpredictable. We'll of course get into all of this in detail, but um, first, as always, I want to give you some background on his childhood and upbringing because it was actually pretty unique and most definitely like contributed to the psychology behind his actions later on. So, you ready, Marv? I'm ready. Okay, so my sources for this episode are the Anchorage Daily News, Refinery29, the New York Post, Oxygen.com, a book by Maureen Callahan called American Predator, MorbidTourism.com, and a podcast called Murder in America. Take a listen to that book. Uh, the audiobook? Yeah. Okay, well, then you're definitely going to know a lot of these details, but um, here we go. So Israel Keyes was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th of 1978, and he was the second of 10 children, like a literal basketball team, bench included. Um, his parents, Heidi and John, moved the family to Colville, Washington when he was just a toddler. And they actually lived a pretty isolated life in a remote cabin in the woods without heat or electricity. Because his parents, uh, they were a bit unconventional, which is like fine, but they didn't believe in government, public schools, or like modern medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, however, members of the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints, which I believe is like Mormon. Um, but upon their arrival to Washington, they actually left the church and instead became fundamentalist Christians and joined a white supremacy church. So off to a great start here. Um, they moved around a bunch, but eventually settled close to an Amish community in Maine. And their unconventional, like off-the-grid parenting just continued. Um, I mean, it's each their own, but this was a bit extreme, I would say. Like, for instance, the children had no birth certificates or social security numbers. How is that possible? Well, they were birthed at home, all of them. Like, no hospital. Just all natural, at home, just amongst the parents. Like, I don't even know how you handle that, but they did. Um, So, yeah, no birth certificate, no social security number. I don't know how that affected them later on, really. It must have in some way. Like, when they, you know, got into regular society as adults, but... Um, well, I mean, you can't apply for a job or nothing. I know. I mean, he eventually goes to the army. So, like, how does he go to the army with no social security? I don't know. I don't make the rules, but he did. Um. So yeah, uh, they were also never vaccinated with like the traditional vaccines that one would receive as like a baby or a child. Which, again, to each their own. But with that, they never attended public or private school. Um, They participated in zero extracurricular activities outside of, like, helping the family household. And probably worst of all, they were never seen by a doctor or allowed to seek professional treatment of any kind, like, regardless of the circumstance. So broken bones, seizures, injuries, medical emergencies, like, whatever the case may be, this kid could be, like, on their deathbed and no medical intervention was allowed. Like, isn't that nuts? Yeah. I don't know how you give birth to 10 kids in in a house. (laughs) Yeah. With no medical advice. I mean, our ancestors did it, like prehistoric age and stuff. Like prehistoric. Did you hear what you just said? No, I know, but it, clearly it's possible. Right, but like not in modern times. I just don't know how someone would be comfortable even doing that. But I don't know. They did. So between that and their complete disregard for like society and government, you have to imagine that he and his siblings were sort of raised under the premise of like you know. I do what I want, and there's no organization or order in place that's going to stop me. 
really. So that whole idea clearly carried over into his adult life, like quick, as you'll see. Yeah. What ethnicity are they? Um, white. They're white. Yeah. He doesn't look white. Who doesn't look white? Israel Keys. What? I hope we are not offending anybody. What does he look like to he looks you? Spanish. Nah, he looks white. I think Let you just. See? I think you just saw like a. Maybe he was just. I think you saw a basic picture, like from the side or something on the computer, because he... He's the one with the fucked up teeth, or am I missing... No. Oh my God, that's Richard Ramirez. Who are you to talk shit about people and whether or not they're not true crime boss if they don't know Israel Keys? And here you are. I was mixing up two people. Confusing him with Richard Ramirez? I was mixing him up with two different... Mm. killers. Mm. We'll have to cover him one day because he does have fucked up teeth and a fucked up brain. So, yeah. Because I was gonna say, I, I was gonna say, how did you join a white supremacy group? <laughs> oh my god. Um. Well, he's he's white yeah. and stupid. So there you go. I don't think he's that stupid. No, he's an asshole. I get he's, he's like an asshole. He's calculated is more of the word I would shit, use yeah, than smart. But yeah. Um. So on previous episodes, we've talked about the McDonald triad, which just to refresh your memory, it's a series of three behaviors displayed during childhood that are believed to like be indicative of murderous tendencies to come. And those behaviors being bedwetting, abuse to animals, and arson. And psychologists theorize that the presence of any two of these factors is an indication that the individual will become a serial killer. Um, and pretty much and it has of course been proven true time and time again with like some of the more infamous serial killers we've all come to know including Mr. Israel Keys um, he apparently loved hunting and would frequently capture and torture animals before ultimately killing them um, he said he was interested in quote anything with a heartbeat and by the age of 14, he himself knew that there were things that he found normal and okay, but obviously others did not. Um, for example, there was an instance where he like captured this cat and had it in his possession for a while, and, like kept it alive, like barely. Um, and I suppose there are some other kids his age that like lived in this makeshift community. And so trigger warning, um, Israel Keys hung the cat to a tree branch by its tail um, and basically brought these kids over to watch him kill it like it was a normal fun thing to do um, but these kids were horrified like rightfully so and went running back to their parents about it and when his parents caught wind of it they simply made him like apologize like no punishment or psychological evaluation of any kind just like apologize and move on yeah so like a plus parenting and that was basically like his child in a nutshell was like a situation like that um eventually he proclaimed that he was an atheist which put a big strain on his relationship with his father but he maintained a relationship with his mother and siblings like somewhat um and in 1997 when the family went back west to oregon israel keys commits his very first crime at the age of 19 and it was the brutal rape of a teenage girl although he was never caught or charged because it wasn't until his ultimate arrest and interrogation in 2012 that all of this came to light. So her identity was never revealed, but Key said that the girl was part of a group floating on inner tubes along the Deschutes River, and he'd been watching her from the beach. And she happens to be at the end of the line amongst her group, and so he was able to somehow grab her and drag her to like a remote campground bathroom where he tied her up with rope and proceeded to rape her. Her friends didn't know she was gone? I don't know. She was like at the end of the group, like they were separated, like distance between them, like just floating along the river. Oh, she was so he kind of scooped her up. Yeah. 
And apparently the girl kept trying to like reason with him, you know, like asking for him to let her go. And she promised she'd never tell anyone. But he recalled that she was like terrified and he tried reassuring her that he wasn't going to kill her, although that was in fact his intention. Um, He planned to strangle her and dump her body in the toilet pit. But luckily, she just kept talking and personalizing herself, and it admittedly deterred him from pursuing anything further, and he let her go. The toilet pit. I'm assuming it's like a similar thing to that story you told on one of the earlier podcasts where the woman fell in. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although later, he told police that at the time, he was too timid and like not violent enough to follow through. But that instance helped him make up his mind that he was never going to let someone get away again. Um, Now, just a year later, in 1998, he joins the Army, where he remains as a soldier until his honorable discharge in 2001. One second. What? He he got off of rape? He never was caught or charged. It just, the girl, you know, kept her promise, didn't say anything to anybody. And it was just gone and forgotten until, you know, he was apprehended by police later on. And these details came to light. She came to light or did he just... He brought it to light. Like, he told the story. Um, so he's in the army, uh, discharged in 2001, and it was around this time that he met and began dating a woman, um, who he met while working for the Maka Indian tribe in Washington, which I don't know what he was doing there, but, um, she was apparently Native American, so he was able to, like, live, um, in the community with her. Um, and only a few weeks into their relationship, she became pregnant with his daughter, Sarah. That's right. This man is a daddy. And apparently a pretty good one. Yeah, like, <laughs> No, this she was normal. She's not have a she was allowed to be born at the hospital. That's terrifying. Like a tattoo on her foot of like yeah. a serial number? No. Um, but apparently he was a pretty like good father, relatively speaking. I mean, he sucks. But according to like his baby moms and long-term girlfriend, Kimberly Anderson, as well as some of his co-workers, um, he was a doting father, very much involved in his daughter's life and would often brag about her. Um, so camping. much so. What? They're capping. They're what? Capping. What does that mean? They lie. Oh. They weren't, though. That's that's just what they said his behavior was like. They lie. Um there's not a serial killer in the world that can be a devoted father, ever. I mean, from outside looking in, they're not aware of his double Those life. Those are two completely they, different people on a spectrum. Well, yeah, we'll talk about that. But basically, what they're saying is they could never imagine that he would have ever been the person who did these horrific things because they would never suspect him of it because they assumed he was such a great father with all the ways he bragged about her and was involved in her life and even the girlfriend was like he was an involved father did her hair took her places brought them on family vacations like he lived a complete double life as many of them do you know what i mean um but like you i guess some people argue that the infatuation with his daughter was like Uh all an act um but upon his arrest he actually used her as a negotiation tool stating that he will divulge anything they want to know so long as they protect his story from the media and that he didn't want his daughter to like even hear these details much less be affected by it for the rest of her life and that maintained as his ultimate concern throughout the entire process they didn't keep their word 
Well, I mean, what are they going to do? But so it's kind of interesting, like the paradox to have someone who's so callously cruel and violent and like evil on one hand, yet like nurturing and loving on the other. I mean, at the end of the day, like his caring concern for his daughter didn't stop him from committing the crimes in the first place. And like, right. it wasn't like he was robbing a convenience store or something either. Like he was brutally raping mm-hmm. and murdering mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and like other people's sons and daughters. You know what I mean? So right, that's the thing. Like you, you, you can't sit here and you brag about your daughter, but yet you don't. You don't think twice before you hurt somebody else's. Exactly. So it's like, you know, I mean, we'll talk more about that when we get to his arrest. But exactly. It's like a paradox. Um, But for now, we are going to fast forward to June of 2011 and dive into one of his most notable crimes. Um, It is actually his second to last murder spree that we know of prior to his arrest, which was about a year later. Um, And this one is really fucked up. So... As I said, his methodology was like no other. Um, He actually planned his crimes years in advance, even though he had no idea who his victims were going to be at the time. So he would frequently take these cross-country trips, like on the premise of work or visiting his siblings. Like that's what he would tell his girlfriend and daughter, at least. But there were times where he even took them along for the drive, like a little family vacay or something. But more often than not, he would take these trips alone. Um, And what he would do is find these remote locations along the way, park his car and proceed to dig like a pretty deep hole where he would bury a five gallon bucket that held like zip ties, a gun, ammunition, silencer, Drano, gloves, duct tape, like the basic necessities to torture and kill someone. Um, And now he buried these pretty much all over the United States, admittedly in like 11 different locations, as I said, although police believe that there were many, many more of these because he was able to fly under the radar for so long. And based on their research of like his trips, mileage, rental cars, like ATM transactions and such, they know he traveled around quite a bit. And so it's heavily theorized that there are more victims out there that either haven't been found or just never linked to him, you know? Well, they were just never used. Right. There could even be some buried that have not been used yet. True. Um, All the while, like his family and friends were kept completely in the dark. Like he was essentially living, you know, this double life as most of these individuals do. Um, but I do want to say that the account of the following events came directly from Israel Keys himself. And remember, he didn't get arrested until about a year later. And it was due to a completely different murder, which we will, of course, get into. But I just want to go on, like, chronological order of his crimes. Um, but police really had no idea what they were dealing with until he divulged some details about that case. And they quickly drew the conclusion that this was not his first rodeo. You know right. what I mean? So they negotiated with him in hopes of getting closure for these potential victims' families, you know, but these were his terms, okay? One, he did not want any of these details being leaked to the media, particularly because his crimes were sexually motivated. And so he plays the father card here and basically explains that he wants to spare his daughter from having to live with the consequences of his actions. Like, maybe don't do it in the first place. Right, you didn't give a shit. You weren't thinking about that. While you were doing it, exactly. So, So, whatever. Um, The second term was that he wanted his girlfriend's car returned to her because they had seized it once he was arrested to hold for evidence because apparently he used it on, like, one of these trips. Um, And it hadn't been released back to her at that point. So he wanted her to get her car back because he felt bad um, because he's, like, a really nice guy, you know? Um, So, yeah. And the the last term was that he wanted a fast-track death penalty. No trial which they couldn't necessarily promise him, but they played along, so he would, like, divulge more information, and it worked. Um, So finally, he was like, okay, 
I'll give you two bodies and details and names and whatever, but that's all for today. Like as if he runs shit there, which is so annoying. Um, but they held their tongue and kept it He's friendly. Not the only one that. No, I know, but a lot of them. Well, did, they use this like method of negotiation, and like right. they give him like a cigar and everything. Like he got a cigar actually, like a cigar and a soda, I think. And he was like, "Okay, I'll give you these two bodies, details, whatever." But that's gonna be it for today. Like, all right, guy. Like, I, I don't know. They they held their tongue, kept it friendly, I guess, to get the most out of him. Um, and they definitely got more than they bargained for. Um, like the way he just casually talks about this is so insane and it's all recorded of course i listened um but his callousness like the way he describes like step by step what he did it's like he's telling some fun fucking story like this piece of shit laughs and makes jokes like it's extremely disturbing to hear and i don't really know how these investigators kept their composure like i really don't but if uh anyone else has interest in hearing like the interrogation there's a really awesome and thorough podcast called True Crime Bullshit, and they do like a six-episode series on this guy and include all of the recordings. So check that out if you're interested, but let's get into it. Okay, so this is his account of the murders that took place on June 8th of 2011. So at this point, Israel Keys and his girlfriend and his daughter have settled in Anchorage, Alaska. So on June 2nd, 2011, Keyes flew from Anchorage to Chicago, um, I guess to visit his brother, he had said, where he rented a car and began driving east. And on the evening of June 8th, 2011, while passing through Burlington, Vermont, he decided to dig up one of his murder buckets that he had buried two years prior and then drove to a hotel in Essex, Vermont, where he sort of just staked out and watched like the world go by below. Um, and at first... He spotted a man who was parking his car in the lot of apartments across the street, and he was like, this is the guy. And, like, he picked him. He's like, this is going to be my victim for the day. And so he literally made his way downstairs to go apprehend him because it was, like, dark and rainy at that point, and, like, no one else was around. So he got down there, but the guy, like, exited his car and quickly ran into the apartments with, like, a newspaper over his head to protect himself from the rain, I guess. And so Israel Keys lost sight of him and was just like, okay, fuck it, I'll wait longer for someone else to come along. And in the recording, he's like joking that this guy got lucky because he was just going to be the one, you know? And like even described his car and the way it looked and the way he looked. So like imagine being this guy and like hearing this recording later on. Like it's crazy. Like thank God it was like raining and he ran right inside. Otherwise, you know what I'm saying? Like he would have been the one. So imagine like if you heard that later and you were like, oh shit, like I just escaped death. You know what I mean? Um, so he waits a, a few more hours and decides that he's just going to venture out and go around looking for someone at this point. So shortly after midnight, he and the contents of his little bucket um, <laughs> walk down the road on foot and he simply chose a house at random, which is like just so fucking terrifying. Um, it was the home of Bill and Lorraine Courier, who were 50 and 55, respectively. So he cuts the couple's phone line and hides in their yard. Um, and he says that he usually does this to see if there's any alarm systems that would be tripped or if police would do a drive-by. Keyword here, usually, which again is like another indication to police that there are many, many more victims yeah. out there. Um, but after hiding in their backyard for like an hour, he eventually decides it's safe and breaks into their home through the attached garage. And now it was like a smaller ranch style home. So according to him, he was able to get into their bedroom within like six seconds where he quote says, I just blitz attacked them. Okay. 
Um, so Bill and Lorraine wake up to find Israel Keys standing over their bed, dressed in all black, wearing a headlamp and pointing a gun at them. Like, <laughs> biggest fucking fear. Can you even imagine? Like, we, I know we talked about this with the murder of Lauren Giddings because she awoke to, found, to find someone standing over her bed. But, like, even this is, like, even more insane. Like, the gun pointed at them, like, all black. Like, a break-in just happened. Like, they're delirious and just waking up. Like, it's so scary. Um, but basically, he orders them to roll over onto their stomachs and proceeds to bound them with zip ties and demand that they tell him where they keep their safe and ATM cards and whether or not they had, like, a gun or any other weapons. Um, he says, quote, I wanted to make sure they knew who was in charge, and so I gave them rules. No speaking unless spoken to, no moving or attempting to escape, and no funny business. And he, like, giggles through this, this sick fuck. Um, and while sifting through their stuff, he found an insignia from the army that belonged to Bill, who was also an army veteran. And so he questioned him on that as well for a while, which, in my opinion, like, personalized him in a way. Yeah. And I, I bet Bill, like, thought or at least hoped that it may like help their case but unfortunately it did not um he then secured the gun that lorraine kept in her nightside table along with their cell phones and a suitcase of belongings he had packed and stole from their home and within 15 minutes of arriving um he then forced them into the back of their own vehicle which he drove to an abandoned farmhouse that he had scoped out earlier in the day um, so once they arrive, uh, he had left Lorraine tied up in the car while he brought Bill down to the basement of the farmhouse and tied him to a stool. But when he went back up to the car for Lorraine, he finds that she somehow managed to free herself from the zip ties um, and was literally running down the road in an attempt to escape. But unfortunately, he caught up to her and like tackled her to the ground. He said he roughed her up a bit, you know, nice. Um, so she wasn't able to get away. And at this point, he's like, cracking jokes about the faulty zip ties he's like damn i'm never using these again they suck you know haha <laughs> so funny like what the fuck i just can't with him um he then brought her to the second floor of the farmhouse and tied her to the bed frame with nylon rope um he explains that he used a trucker knot to tie each wrist to the bedpost followed by each foot which essentially left her spread eagle on the bed oh. yeah um yeah he then made his way back down to the basement to make sure bill was still like tied up all the while she's screaming for her husband which is i just can't even visualize this um but in the interim he too attempted to escape by breaking the stool he was tied to but israel keys made it down there before bill was able to completely like detach himself from the stool so this pissed him off and he would later tell police that like he just completely lost control because he thought he had everything so meticulously planned out um but they were just putting up more of a fight uh than he thought i guess so now he was he was angry he was like oh, they just had no idea how much planning went into this so for them to even think they had a chance like they never did ha 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 they were just shocked you know you could tell like he was smiling like being like they were just shocked you know what i mean like shocked like, no, they don't know what you mean because they're not fucking psychopaths like yeah. you. Um, so when he gets down to the basement and finds that Bill is trying to escape, he grabs the nearest item, which was a shovel, and smacks him upside the head with it, like nearly knocking him unconscious. Um, but yet Bill didn't stop calling out for his wife. Oh, he could hear her distressed upstairs. So he was screaming for her and asking Israel, like, where's my wife? What are you doing to her? Like, repeatedly. 
And so with that, like, he's just angry that this guy's making a lot of noise and, like, postponing him from doing what he wants to be doing upstairs. And so he just whips out his gun and proceeds to shoot Bill with the entire clip, like, killing him instantly. Ten shots. Jesus. Yeah. Um, which at that point, like, I think he really did lose control, like he said, because killing either of them with the gun was never really part of the plan. He more or less used it as, like, a prop of force. But he obviously, like, was equipped with ammunition. So I guess depending on the situation, he may or may not have murdered previous victims with a gun. But in this case, he left behind a mess that he didn't intend to. And it sort of worried him a bit. But not enough to, like, get the fuck out of there. Because right after he fatally shot Bill, he made his way back upstairs where Lorraine was tied up, like, screaming. And he actually expresses that he was um, pissed that he had to ditch the gun that he killed Bill with. Because he took, like, a lot of pride in that gun. Like, I'm I'm sorry you dick um now just imagine like the fear and agony that she must be like in i don't understand why you just a gun though i guess because like i don't know fingerprints or bullets or whatever. he just didn't want a trace of the gun being with him so he like ditched it along the way somewhere but um just imagine like the fear like that she must be dealing with like all that she's endured thus far and now she's heard multiple gunshots probably assume the worst And at this point, she's absolutely terrified of what's to come. And we know this because, like I said, Israel Keyes himself joked with police that these two had no idea what was coming. Like, he was literally giggling and saying, quote, she was so scared. I mean, you could see it all over her face, just terrified. And he's, like, laughing like he's telling a normal story. He's just a piece of shit dweeb. I fucking hate him. Um... I don't understand how the cops just sat there. Like. Exactly. I mean, they they kept their composure. I mean, they wanted to get the most out of him, so they're just going to let him keep talking. You know what I mean? I couldn't do it. I'd be like, you're such a fuck. Like, I'd want to hit him, probably. Um, okay, so trigger warning for this next part. I mean, this whole fucking case is one big trigger warning, but this is pretty brutal. And I've even spared you some details here, and it's still really sick, but... Um, he okay he cut off her clothing with a knife so she's like naked now and he basically proceeds to rape and sexually assault lorraine for quite some time he even inserted foreign objects into her and and gagged her with paper towels and duct tape while simultaneously choking her in and out of consciousness and this went on for a few hours so at this point she was like getting delirious and was like easier to manage because she had put up a big fight like he said that she was kicking and screaming like every step of the way she made it difficult for him to do what he had planned to do. Dobby wanted to chime in on that one. It's okay, puppy. We're almost done. Um, and so once he was all wrapped up with that, uh, he dragged her downstairs to the basement so she could see Bill's dead body, which is another just sick detail that was unnecessary, but he's like... It's fucked Yeah, he like was getting off on the fact that she was going to see like his work there. It's like fucking crazy. But um, he makes this like makeshift garrote with like the nylon rope piece to tie her up, and then he strangled her to death. And just for good measure, in case she magically woke up, he secured a zip tie around her neck and pulled it as tight as possible to prevent her from regaining consciousness, even though he admits that she was, quote, gone at that point. Um, yeah. He then dragged their bodies to the northeast corner of the basement, which he literally points out on a map to police during the investigation. And he pours some drain over them to speed up the decomposition process, collects his belongings, and simply leaves in their car. Um, And at this point, it's like approaching the next morning. So he drives back to their house, parks the car, and heads back to the hotel on foot. 
Hmm. Um, at about 5 p.m. the following day, the couple was reportedly missing by Bill's sister, Dana, and there would be no answers or closure until a year later, once Israel Keyes was finally apprehended for a completely different murder, as I said, which we will get into next week. Um, I think this is a good spot to put the bookmark in. Enough fucked upness for one episode. Because um, that one was pretty heavy. What are your thoughts on it so far, Marv? I mean, I always knew this guy was a fucking Luna Bean. Luna Bean? That's a new word. Oh, That's man. a new word. We'll keep oh, that in the dictionary. Yeah. But I never under, I never knew that he had like this like cynical like storytelling to the police like yeah some sense of humor behind it. The interrogation tapes like they were just way too casual. Like he was telling any old story. Right, like, but like I like you know like what happens if would he find it humorous if somebody was telling him the story about his daughter? No, exactly. That's why I would have told him to just shut the fuck up multiple times. I would not be able to keep my composure. Right, but like you said previously, like the you know the. You know, the, the police, they have to keep on keeping on, you know, like they can't, this way he's just going to clam up and just not speak. Anymore. Right. So they need to keep him talking and so, I get it, but. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'd be totally against if they fucking turned around and was laughing with him. They weren't. They certainly weren't. They just stayed silent pretty much. Uh, they just stayed silent and asked him like general questions as he went along, but they weren't like, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. They just, mm. they didn't really play into that, but. He also didn't take that as a cue to not be that way. He just continued on. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So next week we'll dive into the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Koenig, which is the case that finally brought him down, thank God. But um, if you can imagine, that case is equally as fucked up, if not more. So, yeah. So I hope you're hooked, and we'll come back next Wednesday for part two. Um, but for now, let's lighten it up a bit, Marv, shall we? Um, I know you pulled some stories together, and I'm trying to laugh, so what you got? Okay, I have three stories. Uh, they're different. They're different? Yeah, from each other. I fucking hope so. Um, two of them have crime involved. One of them uh, you may find very... Uh... Funny? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah? You fucking talk too proper with very this. funny. All right, what are they? Uh, so I'll do the first one. Uh, woman allegedly made bomb threats to get boyfriend off work to spend more time with him. <laughs> Clinger. A main woman who wanted to spend more time with her boyfriend came up with an incredibly stupid plan to get him off work, police say. Caleb Blake, 33, allegedly called in two bomb threats to her Bose workplace, the Portland Press Herald reports. <laughs> Officials say the threats to Puritan Medical Products Plant in Pittsville which produces swabs for COVID tests, resulted in the evacuation of, of around 400 employees oh from both God. the company's plants in the town and the loss of a full day of production. She has been charged with felony count of terrorizing. Police say Blake and Aetna resident called police at 9 a.m. Thursday and said there were bombs at the plant. She allegedly called again two hours later and said she was going to plant four pipe bombs near the plant. And this was all just a, not true. It was just like she was saying it. Yeah. Pittsville Police Chief Harold Bickmore says the call was traced to Edna and deputies found Blake after speaking to area residents. He says she admitted making the calls and said that there were no bombs. She was arrested around 6 p.m. on that Thursday and bail was set at $1,500. Bickmore says the investigation involved several agencies, including the FBI. All of that to spend time with her boyfriend? He couldn't just take off for a few days? The fuck? I mean, I mean, oh, we just said the same thing at the same time. Oh, 
Okay. Um, all right. What's your next one? All right. So I'll I'll, I'll do the I'll I'll save the funny one for last. <laughs> okay, you freak. Um, this one, uh, a California woman fakes cancer, forges notes to avoid prison. Oh my god, that's fucked up. Yeah, she's she's a fucking idiot. No shit. Why though? One note submitted to a federal judge sentencing a 38-year-old California woman for embezzlement claimed that a biopsy had revealed cancerous cells in her uterus. Another indicated that she was undergoing a surgical procedure and her cancer had spread to the cervix. Yet another letter warned she cannot be exposed to COVID-19 because of her fragile state. Ashley Lynn Chavez is headed to prison for three times as long. The court this week added an additional two years to her initial one-year prison Oh my prison God, sentence. what a dumbass. The fake claim of having cancer kept Chavez out of bond from the time of her guilty plea in 2019 to embezzling more than $160,000 from her former employer through her sentencing hearing on March 31st, 2021. The Damn. notes then brought her an additional three months of freedom by the judge who believed she was getting medical treatment. Wow. Yeah. Some people, like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So she's in jail now? Yeah. For a while or like? Yeah, well, I mean, she she originally had a one year sentence, and now and then she tripled? lied to have cancer, so now she has three years. Stupid fuck. You might as well just do the one year and just call it a day. The reason why she did it though was because she didn't want to be away from her newborn son. I mean, I, I understand that, but then don't commit crimes that are going to get you arrested. Right. So I don't know. So. All right, this next one is the one that I'll find yeah. funny. Yeah, you yeah, say? yeah, yeah, funny. Okay, go ahead. Dolphins deliberately get high on pufferfish nerve <laughs> by carefully chewing and passing them around. They had a puff puff pass session in the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I'm interested. Dolphins are thought of as one of the most intelligent species in the animal kingdom, and experts believe they have put their ingenuity to use in the pursuit of getting high. <laughs> in extraordinary scenes filmed for a new documentary, young dolphins were seen carefully manipulating a certain kind of pufferfish which, if provoked, releases a nerve toxin. Can And it makes you high? I guess. Does it do it to people, too? I don't know. Though large doses of the toxin can be deadly, in small amounts it is known to produce a narcotic effect, and the dolphins appear to have worked out how to make the fish release just the right amount. Oh, my God. Carefully chewing on the puffer and passing it between one another, the marine mammals then enter what seems to be a trance-like state. <laughs> After chewing the puffer gently and passing it around, they begin to act... Most peculiar, hanging around with their noses at the surface as as if fascinated by their own reflection. It reminded us of that craze a few years ago when people started licking toads to get a buzz. Oh, we talked about that, didn't we? Yeah. Especially the way they hung there in a daze afterwards. It was the most extraordinary thing to see. So we could actually go see this happen? Yeah, it's a documentary. I want to see it. I want to watch the dolphins get high. The documentary that is being made use spy cameras hidden in fake turtles fish and squid to film 900 hours of footage showing dolphins in their natural habitat 900 hours of footage yeah wow the only thing that it doesn't mention is the name of the documentary oh well i'm sure if we google it like it'll come up yeah i mean i want to tell our guests so they can go watch dolphins our guests (laughs) but yeah we'll put it on instagram yeah so i figured you know uh that's pretty funny. Dolphins are really smart. I mean, yeah. that's hysterical. Look you, little guys. Um, all right. Uh, so thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and that you will be back next week for part two of the Israel Keys story. 
Um, and in the meantime, follow us on Instagram, leave us a review, um, give us a rating. Yeah, do all the above. Do all the above. Um, all right, so we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye.